hello again and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am Nurse Mo and I'm really happy to be here with you today spending some time studying together. So in today's episode, we are diving into a pediatric concept, though this disease condition can occur in adults, it's most likely to occur in children, and that is RISE syndrome. Before we dive into that, though, let's take a quick minute for a shout out, and this one goes out to Wanda, who says this. I recently started navigating Nurse Mo's Crucial Concepts Boot Camp, and I am loving every second of it. Prior to purchasing the boot camp, I felt lost, confused, anxious, nervous, and didn't have a clue what was to be expected in this journey. Nurse Mo is a lifesaver. I love the interactive videos, the lectures, the easy-to-follow guidelines. It's so organized and well-structured. It has made my life so much easier. Highly, highly recommend. So thank you, Wanda, for taking the time to share your feedback about Crucial Concepts Boot Camp. I am so happy that you're starting school feeling less confused, anxious, nervous, and lost. That's exactly why I created Boot Camp, and I'm so glad that you're a part of it. So if you're wondering what Wanda is talking about, Crucial Concepts Boot Camp is my nursing school prep course, and I will put a link to that in the episode notes. So now let's dive into RISE syndrome. So this is thankfully a rare condition, but it's also very, very serious. And it involves acute encephalopathy, cerebral edema, increased intracranial pressure, and fatty liver failure. So like a lot of conditions, the pathophysiology is not fully understood. But what we do know points to mitochondrial injury secondary to viral illness, and the use of aspirin in young children. Note that it's not necessarily an aspirin overdose or a salicylate overdose that leads to RISE syndrome. It's basically any use of aspirin that can cause RISE syndrome later on. So in a study conducted in 2018, it was actually found that 80% of pediatric patients who developed RISE syndrome had taken aspirin in the prior three weeks. Note that many times that aspirin use is directly related to symptom treatment of viral illnesses. So when you put those two together, you have a very bad combination that can lead to this serious condition. But note that it could be just the viral illness on its own, and it could be just aspirin on its own. But when they're together, is when it's especially troublesome and especially high risk. So RISE syndrome most commonly affects children age 5 to 16. I also saw 4 to 12. So just know that there's kind of a range there. And it's especially going to be affecting those who have a recent history of viral illness. So children age 5 to 16, and then especially those with a recent history of viral illness. Data spanning 1980 to 1997 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention showed that a recent history of influenza was present in 73% of cases. So having that flu virus is going to be most likely the virus that could lead to RISE syndrome. Could also be varicella infections, which are chickenpox. Those were present in 21% of cases, and 14% of cases were preceded by gastroenteritis infections. 
So without treatment, Rye syndrome can be fatal, and death is usually due to cerebral edema. Children can also suffer long-term neurological deficits that range from mild to severe. Though the organs affected the most are the brain and the liver, any organ can be affected and the complications of Rye's syndrome are widespread. In addition to generalized neurological impairments and that increased intracranial pressure, complications can include fluid and electrolyte imbalances, hypoglycemia, hyperammonemia or high ammonia levels, coagulopathies including DIC, seizures, GI bleeds, pancreatitis, renal failure, respiratory failure, and sepsis. Though mortality from Rye syndrome has decreased drastically since 1980, the condition still has an average mortality rate of 21%, according to data I found at the Cleveland Clinic website. Early recognition and treatment are absolutely crucial for avoiding long-term complications and reducing the risk of death. So now that you've got a little background knowledge about Rye's syndrome, let's dive into caring for these patients and we'll use the straight-A nursing latte method. So the first letter in the latte method is L and that's for look. How does the patient look? What are their signs and symptoms? So there can be some variability for when the symptoms of Rye's syndrome manifest, but they typically appear about three to five days after the viral illness onset. Now, some studies do show that the symptoms can appear up to three weeks after that viral illness. So the neurological symptoms with Rye's syndrome, these are those hallmark signs and symptoms of the condition, and they are due to increased intracranial pressure and elevated ammonia levels, which is secondary to that liver dysfunction. So initial symptoms are typically things like persistent nausea coupled with an acute change in mental status, such as confusion, weakness, visual changes, hearing changes, and lethargy. As the condition worsens, that intracranial pressure is going to keep increasing, and symptoms can include progressively worsening level of consciousness, tachypnea, tachycardia, seizures, weakness or even paralysis in the arms and legs, fixed and dilated pupils, posturing, and coma. And then the liver is that other key organ affected by Rye's syndrome. So in about 40% of cases, there will be hepatomegaly without jaundice. So the next letter in the latte method is A, and that is for assess. So how are we going to assess our patient? So when Rye's syndrome is suspected, it's really important to inquire about recent viral illnesses and aspirin use. It's also important to ask about a history of Kawasaki disease because a key treatment for Kawasaki's disease is aspirin. Other important assessments are obviously a good thorough neurological assessment. If you would like some more guidance on how to conduct a neurological assessment, I have got an episode all about that. So you want to go and listen to episode 234, 
to get more of a deep dive into a neurological assessment. But the short version is you're going to definitely be getting their Glasgow Coma Scale score. And then if they're two years of age or younger, you will use the pediatric Glasgow Coma Scale score instead. You also want to keep an eye for signs of increased intracranial pressure, and those are going to be things like decreased level of consciousness, headache, vomiting, visual or hearing changes, weakness, confusion, and in infants, a high-pitched shrill cry and a bulging fontanelle are signs of increased ICP. You may also have continuous ICP monitoring in place utilizing an intracranial catheter. This is only utilized in the critical care environment, but if it is in place, you're keeping a very close eye on those numbers. And you're also measuring I's and O's, intake and output, pretty strictly every one to two hours as the child is at high risk for dehydration, secondary to vomiting, in some cases there may be diarrhea, and we also may be giving osmotic diuretics, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. In many cases, especially in the really sick little ones, they will have an indwelling urinary catheter, so you can keep a very close eye on urine output. And don't forget to count diarrhea and emesis in the output as well. So the next letter in the latte method is a T, and that is for tests, what tests will be conducted. So RISE syndrome is typically diagnosed by excluding other conditions such as encephalopathy, meningitis, liver disease, inborn errors of metabolism, and adverse drug reactions, along with that suspicion for Rye syndrome, which would be a recent viral infection and or aspirin use. Now, specific tests would be liver function tests. AST and ALT will be elevated and bilirubin will be normal. So liver function tests, elevated AST and ALT, but normal bilirubin. The ammonia level, which is going to be elevated in liver dysfunction. Higher ammonia levels may be associated with poorer prognoses. Note that high ammonia levels cause that encephalopathy. We call that hepatic encephalopathy because it's related to the liver not functioning and not converting the ammonia to urea like it should. So those ammonia levels build up. They're toxic to the brain. They cause all kinds of neurological dysfunction. Neurological dysfunction will also be caused by that increased intracranial pressure as well. A liver biopsy is another test that may be done, and this biopsy will show fatty changes to the liver. And then another blood test is prothrombin time. A prolonged prothrombin time is supportive of a diagnosis of RISE syndrome, and this would put the patient at risk for bleeding. A lumbar puncture may also be conducted to rule out other causes for the symptoms the patient is having, such as meningitis. The procedure will show elevated pressure And the CSF will have normal protein levels with white blood cells less than 8. A skin biopsy could be conducted to diagnose metabolic disorders and fatty acid oxidation disorders. An abdominal ultrasound could be utilized to assess for hepatomegaly, that enlarged liver, 
And then imaging studies like CT scan or MRI will show that cerebral edema as that intracranial pressure increases. And then ongoing labs for our patient would be things like, we'll keep an eye on the liver enzymes. We'll keep an eye on their coagulation studies. We definitely want to watch serum glucose because anytime the liver is affected, your patient is at risk for hypoglycemia. And we'll also monitor their electrolytes. Now, if other organs get affected, then we'll definitely be watching the labs associated with those as well. So the next letter in the LATTE method is another T, and that stands for treatments. What treatments are provided? So RISE syndrome is typically treated in the critical care environment with supportive care. There's no, like, direct treatment or cure for Rye syndrome. So we do what's called supportive care. And this supportive care has a goal of decreasing intracranial pressure, maintaining hemodynamic stability, preventing hypoglycemia, supporting respiratory function, and addressing any coagulopathies. So specific treatments to decrease intracranial pressure include things like the administration of osmotic diuretics, such as mannitol or hypertonic saline. To learn more about mannitol, make sure you go back and listen to episode 208. But basically, these are osmotic diuretics, and they're going to pull fluid from those edematous cerebral cells to reduce cerebral edema and intracranial pressure. We could also have dexamethasone administered to reduce cerebral edema. Other interventions to decrease intracranial pressure include keeping the head of the bed elevated, and maintaining the head in a neutral position without any kinks at the neck, and avoiding any harsh flexion at the hips or any tight clothing or restrictive clothing around the midsection. Those kinds of things can increase intracranial pressure. Some patients will need fluid restriction. And in very severe cases, the patient may need a decompressive craniotomy, which basically is removing a section of skull to give the brain some space to swell so that it essentially can swell more safely without butting up against the constraints of the skull. And this decreases intracranial pressure. Now, a lot of patients with increased ICP will benefit from mechanical ventilation, and we can even hyperventilate the patient as needed to get ICP down. Now, this is not used long-term. It's typically used short-term to get the ICP down when it spikes up. We also want to maintain normothermia. This often requires external cooling measures because as the brain has that edema, the thermoregulation function is disrupted. And many patients will require sedation if they're on a mechanical ventilator. You want to avoid the patient getting agitated, um, getting anxious, coughing, and fighting the ventilator. All those things will increase ICP, so sedation is typically necessary. Other supportive treatments may consist of a dextrose infusion to prevent hypoglycemia vitamin K, platelets, or fresh frozen plasma to prevent bleeding and address that coagulopathy, 
You want to replace electrolytes as needed, replace fluids as needed to maintain euvolemia. So some patients may need fluid restriction. Some patients may need fluid replacement. It's going to vary and depend on the patient. Administering lactulose can help remove excess ammonia levels. And in some cases, maybe dialysis will be needed to get the ammonia levels down. Anticonvulsants may be utilized to prevent seizure and enteral feeding. If the patient's on a ventilator, they still need nutrition, so enteral feeding via a nasogastric tube. So again, even though there's not a specific cure for RISE syndrome, these supportive therapies will help get the patient through it, especially if we catch it early to give them the best possible chance of survival and a good neurological outcome. So the final letter in the LATTE method is E, and that's for educate. How do we educate the family? So the key education point for RISE syndrome is simply to avoid giving aspirin to children unless advised to do so by a physician. Remember earlier I mentioned Kawasaki's disease. Well, one of the key treatments for Kawasaki's is aspirin. So in a case like that, the physician may decide that the benefits outweigh the risk. But in general, you're going to teach your family no aspirin for kids. Alternatives for fever and pain management are acetaminophen and ibuprofen. You want to make sure that you teach the parents to read all medication labels to look for aspirin and salicylates, which can be kind of sneaky and may go by various names such as salicylic acid or methyl salicylate. Even something as innocuous as Pepto-Bismol contains both of these ingredients. So teaching the parents to read labels and to always always discuss any new medications and any over-the-counter medications with their physician or their pharmacist. Now, because Rye syndrome can be fatal if untreated, teach parents to always, always seek medical attention if they notice those signs and symptoms coming back in their child, especially if they've got a viral illness or maybe they accidentally took a medication with aspirin in it. Make sure they know what to watch for and that a full recovery is possible if Rice syndrome is caught and treated early. So there you have it. There is your overview of RISE syndrome. I hope that was helpful for you. And I want to see you back here next week when we will be talking about benign prosthetic hyperplasia. And even before that, if you're keeping an eye on this special Say Yes to Success mini-series that I'm conducting with ATI. We have a great episode planned for you on Monday in just a few days where I am talking about the five things I learned from attending a next-gen NCLEX conference. And I think you're going to really like what you hear. So I'll see you on Monday for that and next Thursday to talk about BPH. And if you're interested in learning how you can prepare for nursing school, then check the episode notes for a link to Crucial Concepts Bootcamp. See you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 